When we left off last week, Israel had just crowned Saul king. So I think it's interesting that Saul's name means asked for or desired. Now, Samuel is still deeply disturbed at the ramifications of rejecting God as king over Israel. He reminds the Israelites of all that God's done for them and chastises them for abandoning God in favor of an earthly king. He declares, if you hold Yahweh in awe, then listen to him. Do not revolt against his commands. Both you and your king must be steadfast in following Yahweh. For if you are not, then Yahweh's hand will be against you. See, here is a sign for you. It's now dry season in Israel, but I call out to Yahweh now. If my words are true, Yahweh will thunder and rain will pour from the sky. And when that happens, you will know your evil is great, for you have asked for an earthly king instead of Yahweh. And in that moment, thunder peals and rain pours from the sky and the people are terrified of Yahweh and of Samuel. Pray for us before Yahweh, quick, so we don't die, they cry. And Samuel says, you shall not die. You have indeed done a great evil, but Yahweh will not forsake you if both you and your king are faithful to follow him. Yahweh has made you his own people. And I, for one, will continue to teach you and to intercede for you. And so, over Samuel's deep misgivings, Saul becomes king over Israel. He doesn't have much to start with. Only about 3,000 warriors follow him, 2,000 of which he keeps with him, and 1,000 of which he puts under his son Jonathan's command. Here's the area where the action today is focused. Here's the Dead Sea and Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is here in Kiriath-Jerim. Saul and Jonathan live here in Gebeah, and Samuel lives just a bit north of them in Ramah. As you can see, all these places are extremely close together, like within walking distance. Saul's son Jonathan, being an indestructible teenager, goes right out with his thousand men and strikes the Philistines who have established a garrison in his hometown of Gebeah. Saul, horrified actually, sounds the alarm throughout Israel, summoning all the warriors to meet at Gilgal to fight. But even though Israel responds, the situation looks hopeless. It's right here that that out of place verse we read last week belongs. It's back in chapter 10. Saul tells Samuel, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Remember that the author took this verse and moved it way back there into chapter 10. Um, and so now, now this week, we're, we're to the events that that relates to. But let's go quick go back and take a look at the context um, where the author put this verse in this context. It was right after Saul was changed into a new man by the Holy Spirit, um, was anointed by Samuel as prince over Israel to deliver them from the Philistines. So the author, by putting this verse there, is telling us there's something about Samuel's instruction related to Gilgal 
that is spiritually significant and is tied directly to Saul's calling as king. It's absolutely vital that Saul wait for Samuel to make these offerings. You can probably guess where this is going, right? Well, the Philistines have 3,000 chariots, 6,000 mounted cavalry, and untold thousands of infantry. You'll remember I mentioned last week that the Philistines have already removed all the blacksmiths from Israel. So the Israelites, they only have plowshares and axes and sickles to fight with. Only Saul and Jonathan actually have swords and spears. So seeing the odds, Saul's army begins to melt away. Saul waits for Samuel and he waits. Days pass. The Israelite soldiers become more and more terrified as the Philistines amass against them. The Israelites begin to hide in caves, in holes, behind rocks, and still Samuel does not come. By the seventh day, only 600 Israelite soldiers remain with Saul. Saul can't wait any longer. He calls for the people to bring forth their offerings. And there, Saul himself makes the sacrifices and calls on the Lord to bless him in battle. At that very moment, Samuel arrives. Horrified, Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, I couldn't wait for you any longer. The army is melting away and we can't go into battle without the Lord's blessing. I had to make the sacrifices without you. And Samuel says, you foolish, foolish man. Did you not realize this was the Lord's command and not mine? If you had obeyed the Lord in this, Yahweh would have established your kingdom forever. But now, your kingdom will fail. Yahweh seeks for himself a man after his own heart, one who will listen to him. I think this was a test and Saul failed it completely. Samuel leaves and heads for Gebeah and Saul and Jonathan and the troops straggle along after him. At this point, the Philistines have taken the pass of Michmash so the Israelites encamp near Gebeah on a high place across from the Philistines. The two camps have a deep ravine between them. Jonathan, still feeling indestructible, says to his armor bearer, let's cross over to the Philistine camp. And without telling anyone, the two of them sneak carefully down the crag, moving stealthily from hiding place to hiding place. Well, Jonathan may be brave, but he's not much of a strategist because when they get to the bottom of the ravine, he realizes uh, they can't cross the ravine without being seen by the Philistine guards. So he says to his armor bearer, well, I think we ought to give it a shot. Let's try to cross. And if the Philistines say to us, stop, don't move until we come down to fight you, then we'll know we've been captured. But if they say, come up here to fight us, then we'll know that the Lord has given them into our hands. And it is here that we first see how beloved Jonathan is. He's a master archer and is respected by all his men. His armor bearer doesn't hesitate for a moment, but says, I'm with you all the way, Jonathan, lead out. I've got your back. And so they step out into the open space of the ravine. 
Immediately, the Philistine guards shout, come up here, you fools, and fight us. Jonathan glances over at his armor bearer in delight. The Lord has given them into our hands. And he and the armor bearer begin the long climb up to the Philistine camp. Of course, once they start the climb, the Philistines can no longer see them. Jonathan and the armor bearer again hide their positions and creep up on the Philistines and attack them from an unexpected direction, killing 20 men with arrows and rocks. At the sudden rain of death on their heads, the Philistine camp is thrown into confusion and the Lord creates a great panic. From the Israelite camp on the other side of the ravine, the lookouts see the Philistines rushing to and fro and see them begin to retreat in panic. Quickly, Saul orders a roll call to see which of his men have gone across and attacked. As an aside, we find out here that the priest Saul has with him is a descendant of Eli, not of Eliezer. Remember how the Lord said after the death of Hophni and Phinehas that the priesthood was to pass from um, the line of Eli back to Eliezer? Well, apparently even in this, Saul has not obeyed the Lord. His priest is still a descendant of Eli. Some Bibles say here that Saul brings the ark into battle with him, and that is actually the word in the Hebrew text here. But there are several references in the story to the Urim and the Thummim, which are not in the ark, but are in the ephod that the priest wears. Therefore, some translations say Saul brings the ephod into battle. Scholars argue that that would make a lot more sense. It's more practical, and the ark wasn't at Gebeah, it was at Kiriath Jerem at the time. I personally don't like to change a Hebrew word just because I don't understand why it's there. I don't see any reason why that ark couldn't have been brought from Kiriath Jerem for the battle. It's not that far away. The ark could have been returned afterwards and the priest would have worn the ephod either way. So I tend to prefer the translations that remain faithful to the original Hebrew. So we're going to assume that it was the ark that went into battle. So Saul calls the priest forward with the ark. But even as the ark is being brought forward, it's apparent the Philistine camp is completely disintegrating. So Saul says to the priest, oh, never mind. And he orders his troops to attack at once. As the Israelites rout the Philistines, even the Israelite soldiers who had been hiding in the caves and behind rocks come forward to join the fray. They fight and they fight and they fight all day long. And as the fighting wears on, Saul declares an oath, cursed be the man who eats food before I wreak vengeance on my enemies. And so the men have to fight on empty stomachs, famished and unable even to snatch a bite from the spoils as they strike down the Philistines. Now, Jonathan, of course, has quite literally been on the front lines of the forces. He's already across the ravine. He did not hear his father's oath. And as he and the men run through the forest chasing the Philistines, he scoops up a honeycomb with his spear and eats it. Gasping in horror, one of the soldiers tells Jonathan of Saul's curse of death on anyone who eats until the battle is finished. Jonathan says, you have got to be kidding me. What a terrible command. How much better the men would fight if they could only eat something. 
Jonathan, as you can see, has a ton more common sense and is far more attuned to the needs of those in his command than Saul is. It's a good thing he's next in line to be king. They've just got to survive Saul first. Well, by the time the day is done and they're free to eat, the men are so famished they cannot even wait for the meat to be fully cooked. They start eating the meat with the blood still in it, which you know is a huge taboo. I mean, this command even predates the Mosaic Law. It's in the Mosaic Law, definitely, but it was also God's command way back at the time of Noah when God first allowed humans to eat meat in addition to plants. When Saul finds out the men are eating raw meat, he orders a big stone to be rolled over to him and for all the men to bring their meat to the stone to be offered to the Lord and cooked properly. This was the first altar Saul ever built to the Lord, and it was in response to a disaster of his own making. After everyone's eaten, Saul says, hmm, let's go down and grab some more spoils from the Philistines and kill anyone else we find. The men think this is a great idea. Hoorah! But the priest says, uh, maybe we ought to consult the Lord first? Well, duh, yeah. So the priest brings the Urim and Thummim forward. Remember that we don't exactly know what these look like or how they worked. All we know is that they were given by the Lord for the uh, pre to the priest for the leaders of Israel to use to determine the Lord's will in yes-no sorts of questions. Robert Alter points out that Urim starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and Thummim starts with the last letter, kind of like A to Z or Alpha to Omega. So Saul asked the Lord, if I go down and plunder the Philistines, will you give them into my hand? And the Lord is silent, which is pretty interesting. However it is that the Urim and Thummim work, there's apparently a neither choice. Since both words are plural um, in Hebrew, I'm wondering if the Urim and Thummim are a set of tokens with the first letter on one side and the last letter on the other. I would bet, if so, that there would be 12 tokens, one for each tribe, right? And if they come up with a 6-6 six, six split in a tie, then that could be a neither sort of answer. And that is just me guessing. We don't really know, but the answer was not a... So anyway, there's no definitive answer from the Lord. Saul real, realizes the Lord is angry and that an oath must have been broken. And the only oath that's pertinent that he can think of is the one he made. Someone must have broken his oath of fasting during the battle. Angered, he declares, bring all the officers forward and we will cast the Urim and Thummim to see who has offended the Lord. Even if it is my own son, I will put the offender to death. Well, of course, it does turn out to be Jonathan. And Saul says, what have you done? But Saul, Jonathan stands courageously and says, I did taste a bit of honey and I'm prepared to die. And Saul reacts saying, oh, no, that I may die such a death for my, my son is doomed. Well, the troops aren't having any of it. They mutiny on the spot. There is no way we're letting Jonathan die. This whole victory is because of his bravery. God wrought this victory today and not a hair of Jonathan's head will be harmed. Oath or no oath. And so the troops save Jonathan and he does not die at the hand of Saul, his father. 
and Israel and the Philistines who are left head back home. And so it says, Saul takes hold of the kingship of Israel. That word translated takes hold can also mean caught or trapped. He is a deeply flawed and conflicted leader, one whose kingship is doomed from the start because of his disobedience, a man who suffers from imposter syndrome, as we saw last week. He is indeed a great warrior, doing battle with Israel's enemy on all sides. He battles Moab and the Ammonites and Edom and the Philistines, and everywhere he turns, he triumphs. One day, Samuel comes to Saul and says, the Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies, has spoken to me. He says, it's time to reckon with the Amalekites for what they did to my people Israel as they were coming up out of Egypt. You'll recall that the Amalekites attacked the Hebrews as they fled from Egypt. They came at them from the back and attacked those lagging behind who would have been the elderly, the ill, the families with young children. It was a time when the Israelites as a whole were at their most vulnerable, scared to death, traumatized, and facing a vast desert. They were still close enough to Egypt to realistically turn back. The Amalekites attacked when God's plan was hanging in the balance. If the Hebrews faltered and turned back, there would have been no nation of Israel and no future blessing of all nations through them. God swore on that day that for this terrible transgression, he would wipe the Amalekites from the face of the earth. And now the time has come. Samuel tells Saul, you are to go now and strike down Amalek and put everything under the ban. Every man, woman, every child, every animal, everyone and everything is to be devoted to the Lord by destroying it completely. So this is one of those places in scripture where people throw up their hands and say, I, I can't worship such a God. And I understand that. But having studied all that has gone before, you now have sufficient context to approach this passage. You know that this sort of destruction was a common practice in the A&E. This is an accepted part of their culture. This is what these people understand to be the most extreme punishment possible. They also understand it to be the prerogative of the gods when offended. To them, the hard part isn't that they're committing genocide, but that they're not allowed to keep any of the spoils. The act of total destruction is, to them, an act of worship. They are giving up their payment for service as soldiers. They are giving up riches. They are giving up concubines and therefore future children. They are giving up animals that could keep their families fed and clothed for the entire year. It is an ultimate act of trust that God will provide. And it's an object lesson in how much God cares for his people, especially when they're at their most vulnerable. God will not stand for his people to be destroyed when they're trying to follow him. And that's what made the Amalekites different. All these other nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, etc., these were nations the Israelites married into and whose idols the Israelites began worshiping. For that, the Israelites will bear the consequences. But the Amalekites attacked the Israelites 
at one of the few times the Israelites were actually following God, and the Lord will not forget that. For this, the Amalekites are to be utterly destroyed. This is a sobering thought. This is what it means to God when we ourselves are a stumbling block to others who are weaker and who are faltering as they try to follow God. We must never cause someone to doubt God's love. This is the point of the story. This is what is underneath all this cultural barbarity. We need to see past the wrapping paper. And lastly, we need to remember our discussion from a few weeks ago about how the Lord sees time. In the Lord, time is not linear. It's pretzel-shaped, layered, intertwined. In him is both the beginning and the end. And our lives have to be viewed from this perspective as well, from God's perspective. Theologian Barbara Holmes gave a lecture at the Center for Action and Contemplation in 2019, where she said she experienced profound change in her perspective only after she realized she needed to think of people as spiritual beings having a bodily experience, not the other way around. Our lives are far larger than just this temporary human experience. The Bible is full of teaching that our current bodies are like grass, here only for a moment. But God sees us in our eternal form, certainly including what we are now, but also what we were before we were born and what we will be after we die. How we know our bodies now is just a season And I think that to God, if we are totally screwing this season up, especially if we're endangering his grander plan, he has no hesitation at all in lifting us right out of here and bringing us back home to him. We've already seen how God views such people as having paid for their transgressions at the great cost of their lives and how there is no more condemnation afterwards, but that he holds their very deaths as holy. If you missed that, go back and check out the story of Korah and Dathan in class 22. Likewise, God's sentence on the Amalekites needs to be viewed from this much larger perspective, at least as far as understanding how it fits into the biblical narrative. This is not the first time the Lord has made it crystal clear that the Amalekites will be wiped from the face of the earth, and now the time has come for them to be dealt with. The Lord has given this sacred task to Saul. So Saul summons his troops to Telaim. Warning Israel's allies, the Kenites, to leave, he lays in wait until the Kenites flee the area. Then he attacks. The Israelites lay the city of Amalek to waste. But Saul and his troops do not devote everyone and everything to the Lord. They do not destroy everyone and everything. Surely Saul knows this is a terrible, terrible misdeed, but he does it anyway. Saul allows the king of the Amalekites, King Agog, to live, and he and the troops keep the best of the sheep and the cattle. And the Lord speaks to Samuel saying, I repent I ever made Saul king over Israel. He has turned away from me and again has not fulfilled my words. Samuel is incensed. He rises early the next day and strikes out to find Saul. When Saul sees Samuel, he says, oh, bless 
blessed are you, Samuel. See, I've done everything the Lord said. And Samuel says, oh, yeah? Then what's the sound of sheep bleeding and cattle lowing that I hear? And Saul says, oh, uh, that's just what I kept uh, to give as a sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, that's right. I kept them so I could do a great big holy sacrifice. And Samuel says, you liar. You may think that what you do is not important, but you are the head of the tribes of Israel now. The Lord anointed you king and sent you on a mission. And no matter what you think of your own abilities or importance, what matters is what the Lord told you to do. And he told you to put the Amalekites under the ban and to destroy them all. Why have you done evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul says, I only spared King Agog and we only brought the best stuff back to a sacrifice to the Lord. Everything and everyone else we destroyed. Clearly, Saul believes a set of alternative facts. But alternative facts are not facts. You cannot lie to the Lord God of hosts. And Samuel says, does the Lord take more delight in sacrifices than in heeding his voice? Heeding is better than sacrifice, and listening is better than offerings. The diviner's offense is, about, is rebellion, and the transgression of idols is defiance. Since you have cast off the word of the Lord, the Lord has cast you aside as king. Wow, this is the kernel of the story. This is what we absolutely must take into our hearts. God cares more about paying attention to his living voice than about conforming to the rules and regulations and commands, even if they are found in scripture. Let that sink in for a minute. When we use scripture, the laws, the rules, the traditions, whatever, for our own purposes in opposition to God's living spirit, then we are using what should be holy tools for God's means as unholy tools of divination for our own means. And divination, using God's tool in our own power, is at its root a sin of rebellion. It is worshiping ourselves in essence. We worship ourselves and other things as idols in place of God, and we do so in defiance of God. This is why it's such a big deal that we understand that when Jesus says the greatest command is to love God and to love each other, and that on this hangs the law and the prophets, he's saying that all of scripture is subject to God's voice of love first. We must not use scripture as a baseball bat to harm and abuse each other. Well, Saul sees he's messed up big time. And so he tries to blame the troops, saying the troops insisted on keeping the best of the booty. What a coward. May God forgive me for saying so. I know God loves Saul. And even if he is a horrible king, he's still the Lord's anointed. But good grief. It is so hard to give respect to a leader who deserves no respect. And Samuel says, no, there is no changing now, Saul. And Samuel turns on his heel to depart. Desperate, Saul grabs for the hem of Samuel's cloak, but it tears off in his hand. And Samuel says, 
so shall the kingship be torn from you this day and given to a man who is better than you. Then Samuel says, bring me King Agog of the Amalekites. The Hebrew here is obscure. Some translations say King Agog comes with delicate mincing steps, arrogantly thinking he has escaped death and they're calling him out to parley. While other translations say he comes haltingly, trembling, afraid that death has turned its face towards him. And some translations change the order of the letters of the word, so it says in chains, figuring maybe the scribe transposed the letters by accident. Given the, cultural, given the cultural context, I tend to go with the Septuagint version, which says he's trembling. Samuel pronounces judgment on King Agog, saying, as your sword has bereaved women, more bereaved than all women will be your own mother. And he slaughters King Agog as if he were a sacrifice, completing what Saul failed to complete. And when Samuel and Saul part that day, they never see each other again, for the Lord repents that he ever made Saul king over Israel. Wow, that's some pretty heavy stuff. In our groups today, we're going to dig into what it means to obey uh, the, the living voice of God. The word obey in Hebrew also means listen. Um, it's uh, it's it's interesting. And we're going to put this story in juxtaposition with uh, the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus, where Jesus disobeyed the law all the time. He broke the rules all the time. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Oh, there we go. Looks like folks are back. Um, so yay. So be sure to turn your mics back on so that we can hear each other and, um, talk. So that was, I, it's always been, um, interesting to, to see how Jesus approached the law. And when we get to the new Testament, we're going to see really some differences between how Jesus viewed the law and how the apostle Paul views the law. Um, so talk to me about what you guys came up with on this. <laughs> well, or what you about instead of the question, maybe the question was Margaret came up to how Jesus was always compassionate to everybody. It didn't matter you know, what they did for a living or who they were because he could see their heart. So he knew that deep down they were good people too. And how um, that fills in with the, the, the bullet points that you put is because of his compassion, that's how he treated people. So the, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus is even Lord of the Sabbath. And, you know, that that's that's kind of how I reconcile. And another another thing was that Jesus said, you know, that all of the law was contained in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. 
rather than you know getting lost in the weeds of how do we define what is work on the sabbath or how do we define you know all of these things and arguing over inconsequential things focus on those two things and you have fulfilled the law yeah we our group we we really focused on love a lot and the part and mercy towards others and um that that's even you know in the in the old testament you know you had the the references from the old testament from the hebrew bible and most of them had to do with mercy and love and uh, but you know uh within those but we also talked about how as human beings um we're very capable of rationalizing that you know okay you know all right samuel hasn't shown up yet and i'm about ready to to be wiped out so i'm just going to take this into my own hands you know okay god hasn't given me an answer so that must mean i'm supposed to do it myself yeah so that's a good i i like the way you put that because that ties right back in to the the whole part of the story where he asked the lord and and they used the urim and the thummim and the answer was nothing. Sometimes, sometimes that's the answer when we ask God, right? What, what do you do when that happens? Something that uh, I, 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 I start it as a busy signal and I call back. <laughs> 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 Something that I, for me, you know, part of how do I reconcile both the extremes, in my opinion, it's, I, I don't know the exact verses. So I know that there's the one verse that talks about my ways are not your ways, or the other way around, I can't remember. And then the other verse were lean not on your own understanding. And so that's, to me, where I, I tend to just sit with that of realizing God's ways are not my ways. And, and there are times where I will never understand things. And it doesn't seem like he's calling me to understand him in order for me to love him with all my heart, soul, and mind. And so there's a piece that I am able to just sit in that uncomfortable, unknowing, not quite understanding because he is telling. I, I can rest in knowing that he is letting me know that that is not my role. <laughs> and it, as difficult as it is, because I do think it kind of contradicts how we are as humans of wanting to know answers and wanting to get things right. There is a peace that comes with, thank goodness, I don't have to understand it all because yeah. if I did, then I, I think in my human nature, I would consider myself a God and I wouldn't need God. So there is a, almost like a, um, a humbleness that I get to a sit rest. in. Yeah. A rest and just an, a posture of humbleness, knowing that I am not a God and I can rest in knowing that I'm, there are going to be many times that I don't understand. And it's okay. There can also be the question, are you asking the right question? Yeah, I think a lot of times I um, will simply accept the silence knowing that number one, it must not matter which way I go, if it's a yes, no, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just a choice. If the Lord really cared, the Lord would tell me, you know, the Lord would make it clear if it was a big deal. Um, 
and 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 the other thing is resting in knowing that I, in that situation I can make whatever my next best choice is as best as I can tell what to do, knowing that it may take another level of experience and more maturity before I am in a place where the Lord can actually answer me. Yeah, sometimes I, um, I look at that, what seems to be a non-answer. I look at that as, um, either wait, you know, until I do, you know, or just maybe, you know, the, the not now thing, or I look at it as, okay, I can consult with some other trusted Christian friends and say, here's what I'm looking at. And can you help me make these decisions? And if they have the same situation where they're like, I'm getting nothing, then I just figure, okay, well, yeah, maybe not right now. You know, there's that scripture that comes to mind, Barb, when you're talking, it's in the multitude of counsel. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's yeah. what you're doing. You're just going to multiple counsel. Yeah. So that you don't end up having your own little, very well, narrow perspective yeah. of what you think. You don't have my blinders on, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what about the um, second question? I mean, really, you know, you've answered the first question that Jesus reconciled uh, when Jesus looked at the law, he he saw the concepts of loving God, loving your neighbor, loving yourself. And then from that flowed all the rest of the law. It's like a Christmas tree with the ornaments, right? And, and, and you don't stand on the ornaments. It's not about the ornaments. It's about the Christmas tree. And, um, uh, and so always always Jesus actions um, were informed not by the ornaments, not by the laws, the rules, the, the verses they were informed by the principle of the thing. Um, There was a really, some of the references I gave you were really quite profound. Some of them, like there was one, that first one in Matthew 15, one through nine, the, the religious leaders are, you know, calling Jesus on the carpet because why don't you make your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Because that is the rules. And Jesus just looked at him and said, well, but there was also a rule about honoring your father and your mother. Mm-hmm. And yet yeah, you yeah. are wealthy and you turn right around and devote your wealth to God when your parents are in need. I want you to hear that loud and clear because we hear the, also the context of um, the, all the laws about the 10% tithe. You remember those and how much guilt that Mm -hmm. places on us. And yet here is Jesus himself saying, you have family members in need. What are you doing? Giving that money to God, so to speak. That's kind of deep there. Okay. You need to not get wrapped up in the rules. It is important. And and I think I've said something about tithing before. And if I haven't, it's worth saying again, God's tithe is not about the 10% of our wealth. It is absolutely important that our wealth 
go for love. That Mm. is giving it to God. Mm-hmm. And it is important, not that just 10% of our wealth goes there, 90% or more of it got to go that direction. The same with all of our resources, with who we are, what our gifts are, and what we spend our time on. Our tithe to the Lord is 90%, not 10%. Yeah, it's not just about the church or foreign missions. Exactly. But, and, and I'm not saying just keep your money and spend it on things. You see the right. difference in what I'm saying here? Yeah. You, you have a family member or a friend or even yourself, your own family is in need. Devote go. that money to love. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. Um, there were, I wanted to touch base, and I don't know if your your groups got to this, but the second question had to do with behavior. Mm-hmm. Had mm-hmm. to do with how do we expect people to behave if they're good Christians? So let's just stop with that. That's the first half of the question is how do we expect people to behave if they're good Christians? Well, and that's a really interesting one because some churches focus on kind of what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did on, you know, are you following the rules? Mm-hmm. But for me, what, what characterizes the activity of God in someone's life is, are they loving? Are they caring about other people? Are they selfless in their choices, um, not not focusing on legalism, focusing on love. I had someone tell me recently, God is calling me to obey, not just to love. And it was <laughs> so shocking, you know, because we're <laughs> it's, just to love. <laughs> yeah, just to love. And and I, I do think that is where a lot of um, it, it gets challenging because there are a lot of things in the Bible that makes it that makes us feel like we have to obey instead of loving. And in the specific but, scripture that says, if you love me, you will obey me. I think t- well, you know, it gets twisted also. Well, and I think that that, that, I mean, at least for me, that implies that the person that said that did not understand what it means to love. There's a very superficial understanding of love. I mean, true love is totally sacrificial. And and to make it fluffy is not really understanding what that passage is saying. Uh, Gail, do you see, do you, I believe you said meet them where they're at? Yes. Yes. That's what love is too, is meeting people where they are because that's where the Lord is. And loving them for who they are. Yes. And where they are. And I remember, and and I remember as a young woman feeling less than afraid, feeling 
a deep reluctance to go to church mm-hmm. because my husband would not go with me. Mm. And that was a thing in the kinds of churches I went to. Yeah. It was a reflection on him. It was a reflection on our family. It was a, it kept me from going to church. What kind of stumbling block is that? Sad. Yeah. What about your, you had a similar example, didn't you? Yeah, well, that too. Speak up, Andy. I can't hear you, hun. Well, we were we were talking kind of two things, one two two of many things. But um, when I was first a Christian, you know, my expectations of Christian were like, oh, they're like Jesus, perfect, you know, awesome, and it, it was everything but that, you know, and which really disillusioned me for a while you know, until I grew, you know, and then also when I went through my divorce, you know, my ex-husband was just, he just went crazy. And, um, and the stench of the D word that I had to walk through and, and how people's, you know, even though he didn't go to church with me, you know, they knew I was married, but once I'm not married, it's like, I had a stench, I had a stain, I had, you know, and they didn't know how to help me. And now I've even had a pastor because that was like a long time ago because I'm 63 now and I was very young. I was like 19 when all that went on. So, um, and so, you know, a lot of churches have grown since that era. You know, we're involved in a wonderfully life-giving church where we meet people where we at. In fact, this weekend, we're going through a redemption weekend, you know, where we're trying to get inside the soul you know, to help people know Jesus. And that's our whole focus, you know, and be healed. And so um, and I, we're going to go through as participants this time instead of leaving. <laughs> so yes, it's whatever you want to do, Lord, we're here. <laughs> so I think that's what it is. It's just, you know, um, it's, it's being like Jesus when, you know, when you, because in love, there's also obedience, but it's out of a love, you know, for the Lord. And, it, and the love of the Lord is you want to be like him. So, you know, you can love people that are in sin freely, mm-hmm. but you don't have to participate and you have your boundaries. You know, if they invite you and there's going to be a lot of debauchery going on, you just say, no, I'm sorry. I, I can't do that. You know, and they'll understand because they know your, your heart towards them. And they also know your position. Mm-hmm. you know and if they don't that's something they have to grow on it's not something for you to take on and feel bad about mm-hmm. does that make sense because we have the freedom to be like christ mm-hmm. right sense oh, somebody step in okay and since the you know we kind of mentioned that the obedience stems from the love you know that with the love that it, but again we are human and so we don't always obey and but again mercy rather than judgment you know so the love provides the mercy and even when we don't we don't always obey or someone else isn't always obey it's not up to uh, i think was one erica or ellen one of them said something i'm so glad i don't have to i'm i'm not the one that has to make that judgment call and i'm not the one who has to make that ultimate decision and um and i shouldn't be you know it's not up to me to judge that person it's you know that's between them and god and if you know, it's like the parable where, where Jesus paid everybody and where the landowner paid everybody the same thing that, you know, whether they worked an hour or 10 hours and mm-hmm. or the thief on the cross. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and think- I think that this whole idea of judgment that, that you, Barb and Andy have brought up um, bears a little bit um, of discussion here just for a second, because, um, you know, Barb is saying, well, we need to love, you know, that needs to be the, the main focus. And yet Andy is um, rightfully pointing out that there are some things people do that we can't participate in because it's just not where God is. It's not of God. And, and yet there's Christians who say all those same words, same words, and mean something completely different. Um, and, and people who say the words Andy said and what they're doing is they're using those words in judgment of someone else. Um, and people who say the words Barb said, who are using tough love, you know, um, in, in which they have judged someone else as inferior. And so I want, I just want to throw out there that if we find, this is at least my guideline, if I find myself um, feeling like I cannot participate with someone or go to where they are. Um, If I disapprove of or think they're off the path somehow, you know, um, I, I have to stop before I let those words come out of my mouth and look at the fruit of their lives. It does not matter if they are doing something that is forbidden to me, you know, because it would be bad for me to do that. That does not matter if I can look at their lives and see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It does not matter if how they are living is directly opposite to how I understand the scripture to say they should be living or what their sexuality is or anything. It does not matter if I can look at their lives and see the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. If they are off the path and as I told you all last week, I don't even believe in this whole path thing. If they're out the, out of the meadow, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> then then the fruit in their lives will be destructive. Mm -hmm. It will be self-harming. It will be harming to other people. It will cause strife and anguish and grief and rejection and death. Mm -hmm. But if how they are living their lives is perfectly acceptable to God, and if God is walking right along there beside them, then I... Who am I to judge? I I am not to judge. I can see that they are living in love, in peace, in kindness, in goodness, in self-control, in peace, in patience. How dare I judge them based on scripture? Are you kidding me? And that's the point of this whole discussion today. Right? Yeah. I, I look at it as... It's, it, whatever it is, whatever we're talking about here, um, whether it's behavior or anything like that, 
or their beliefs that I don't think that that's what God wants for me. Now, if that's what you believe God wants for you, that's okay. I mean, you know, that's, that's not for me to decide, but you know, and you may disagree with how I live my life and that's okay. As long as I'm not being destructive, like Gail said, you know, or, um, and the same for someone else. I'm just like, that's not for me. Or, um, you know, and Andy was saying something about, well, no, okay, if it's going to involve this, I'm sorry, I can't participate. Well, I can't, but that doesn't mean you can't. And I'm not judging you. If you want to go to, yeah, yeah if, if you want to go, if, if that's something that you need to do and you want to go do, that's that's up to you. But I, I don't feel happy to do that. And that's okay. You know, so yeah. I don't put judgment on them. It's just not for it's not something I'm anticipating. Yeah. yeah. And I'm Paul just ju- I'm judging Paul it. talked about that too. And, and he yeah. said, you know, there is nothing on the face of this earth that you cannot do, you know, that is unholy. Um, God, you know, you can eat whatever, do whatever. That doesn't mean, he said, at the same time, that doesn't mean everything on this earth is healthy for you to do <laughs> or helpful for you to do, you know. Um so, so uh, I, I guess we're about out of time. Unfortunately, it goes so fast. Uh, um, but uh, it's it's uh, food for thought, and um, we will talk again next week. Okay. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. All righty. You know, I, I was thinking, Gail, um, as as you and others were talking and when you were saying, you know, that Paul, Paul's perspective on it. Um, sort of looking at, at how other people live their lives. Um, hello. <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, there is nothing, you know, it, it all depends on, on what's going on inside of you rather than what you are doing. Right. Um, if, if, if what you are doing is life giving for you and for others, um, and it is coming from a place of, of, I, I struggle with the word obedience sometimes because of the way it is used so often. Yeah. That's why I like, I often like to substitute the word listening for obedience yeah, it, yeah. Was, it is um, the same concept in the in the Old Testament. Yeah, and and so if 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 the actions we are taking are resulting from that orientation, then whatever it is we are doing is right at the time that we are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that goes back to it's not for us to judge how other people are living in relationship to God, right? And to others. Uh, and it's I think that is God. something. Yeah, and that is something that as Christians we get wrong all the time, and we're taught to get it wrong. Yes, it makes all the me time. sad. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, 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 the statement that was made, you know, the person that said, you know, to me, it's more important to be obedient than to just love. I mean, oh my gosh, 
love isn't adjust. Love is never adjust. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Love is 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 work. It's they action. They got the order of that wrong, don't they? Yes. Yes. And and but I think that 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 comes from teaching straight from many many pulpits. Yeah. And many many Sunday school classes and many many Bible studies. And and the whole the whole uproar about the book uh, Love Wins. Yeah. Yeah. It's misunderstanding love. Yeah. That love isn't fluffy and easy. It's 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 a complete mindset. Yep. It is a way to live. It is the ocean we swim in. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that expression. Oh, I love you guys. It's so nice to see your faces and to talk to you. I guess we will see you next week. Yeah, yes. Hopefully. You have a good week. We'll see you then. All right. You too. Bye bye. -bye.